You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss. Can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. Dispatchers, my listeners, I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus, and today's episode is one that I have not been looking forward to making, honestly. One of the very dark days of American history that you don't relish reliving. And particularly when you had the privilege, uh, like myself, of witnessing this event firsthand. And that is January 6th. And so it's a day that really, you know, it's one of those days, right? Where it's just, you'll, you'll never forget, you'll never forget the things you saw, the just the briskness of that morning. I mean, a cold, cold morning in D.C. You know, that January 6th of 2021. And it is a huge part of why Scipio is the way he is. It's a huge part of what's informed my, you know, kind of a renewing of my outlook on history and on my country, frankly. And I mean, it's one that had been progressing for a while here. Uh, I was not shocked, shall you say, by the reaction. Uh, that it happened initially. What I was uh, a bit taken aback by at the time was how quickly the machine went into action to really flip this day on its head. And, uh, you know, that's not to say, obviously, there were violent acts that the Patriot side committed. Um, I think almost always, though, in self-defense, really, uh, I would challenge anyone to provide me an example of where there was not a, you know, some kind of provocation beforehand that led to the incident. And I mean, it is, legally speaking, some of this footage as it leaks out now, right, slowly and slowly, bit by bit, um, we realize now that what was done to the crowd was nothing less than the legal definition of incitement. The crowd was incited into violence. And without any warnings, without any, like, really even signs that these, I mean, as I'll address in my article, as I, you know, this one is definitely one you want to, uh, if you are not subscribed to the Substack, uh, to subscribe, right, and to click the the link in the show notes, right, if you're on a different one of these platforms here, uh, because some of the, some of the pictures we managed to capture that day are just, when I say, you know, me and my crew were on the front lines, uh, we were on the front lines. And it is it is just a window into events on history, you know, in our history that, uh, you know, very few people get to experience. And it's something that uh, I definitely, despite all of the, the emotional, uh, you know, really just trauma. Right. I mean, this was a uh, when some of these police officers, you know, from the January 6th committee, when they talk about this being a war zone, they're not that far off, honestly. They're not that far off. Um, and I know only four people died, but I mean, this was a this is a very intense, very long. Some of these parts uh, of the Capitol were engaged in hours long hand to hand combat. and. It's something violence, of course, started by the Capitol Hill Police Department. And then as these things uh, are want to do, right, they spiraled out of control. And we had a, a healthy dose and a healthy helping hand from the Capitol Hill Police Department. Uh, they were more than willing to help egg this on. And by 
you know, what we can analyze now, right, and know are just a, a, a coterie of very obvious Fed provocateurs. And we know that because they refuse to go after any of them. And it's only years after people banging the drum on Ray Epps, who is like the one dude who is going to, you know, the one provocateur is going to face any jail time. And of course, this guy, total slap on the wrist. He's going to receive six months, maybe in jail. There's nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, Jacob Lang, who uh, we'll address when we get to the further research section. I mean, he's been sitting in jail. He'll be, he'll be sitting in jail for three and a half years before he even gets a trial date and pre-trial detention. Like, are you kidding me? Ray Epps is going to get like six months of, if that, with the good time credits? He'll spend a couple months in some cushy, low-security jail. He'll be out on house arrest. He'll be living his life. And hey, you know, that's what, every once in a while they got to smack down one of these obvious agents or they can be like, no, see, we, we prosecuted Mr. Epps and he's served his time and blah, blah, blah. Give me a break, right? <laughs> we can look at the disparity in justice. This is a, this is a farce. And so someone that, uh, you know, is just, he was very obviously at the forefront of this stuff. One of the only people on footage, right, recorded footage, actually saying we should go into the Capitol before the day of January 6th. So, Ray Epps clearly, clearly a part of this whole agenda here. One of the network of federal agents that uh, people like Revolver News, uh, Aaron Beatty, and then uh, Julie Kelly. So a lot of these are uh, under her archive. I don't think she writes for American Greatness anymore. Uh, but her stories on this subject are still archived at American Greatness. I mean, if you want to go back and read some actual history of what is being done to the January Sixers, of how these people are being treated. I mean, there was a gentleman uh, in in New Jersey, right? A couple. Uh, you know, I think last month, right? Who was hunted through the woods like a dog. I mean, it's disgusting. And you can thank your GOP Congress for rubber stamping more and more funding for the FBI and the DOJ's totally untethered witch hunt of all these peaceful American citizens, people who walked into the Capitol for 10, 15 minutes, and then when were ushered in often, and then when police officers told them to leave, they left. Absolutely just obscene. Absolutely obscene what is being done to these people. And yeah, this article is written on July 4th, right? So I reference, you know, there are some references to that holiday of July 4th in the essay. Just for context, I mean, we're going to call ourselves a land of the free. We have legitimate political prisoners. Legitimate political prisoners in lockup in conditions worse than the Soviet gulags if not equal, in their horrors. We are only steps away from the scale. We're so far removed from, goodness, rule of law, geez. I wish. I wish. No, this, uh, this day, like so many other planned and staged events, part of a centuries-long agenda. A centuries-long agenda. January 6th, one of their very important days. Uh, and driving that forward and getting people acclimated to the idea of political prisoners in America. I, uh, I firmly believe that. And something that, you know, you look back on it now. Man. I, I really don't know how people can still support Trump. After watching, I mean, regardless of your... I mean, we've pretty clearly demonstrated that he is a bad actor here in regards to the the alleged vaccine agenda, Operation Warp Speed, and the forced evolution of humanity. I won't belabor that issue here. But I mean, geez. He tells people to go to the Capitol. He eggs them on. I mean, seriously, I was there, right? He egged people on. He told people that he was going to be there at the Capitol with them. And for all these comparisons to like Andrew Jackson and Teddy Roosevelt, right? This guy styling himself as some kind of populist. Dude, an actual populist president would have been down there in the trenches with us. 
This violence never would have occurred if even a single politician had walked down to talk with that crowd, to be amongst the people. I mean, this was a crowd of Trump lovers, of Trump supporters. No one would have been able to touch that man. No one. That was one of the safest places on the planet for Donald Trump that day. Yeah. An actual leader, I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous, right? We know this is just a big load of crap. I mean, Andrew Jackson basically threw a kegger in the White House. That was his inauguration party. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt actually killed people in war. He was a real man. He led people into combat. Donald Trump, his personal Vietnam, was avoiding sexually transmitted diseases, per his own words. This man is not a leader. He abandoned his people in the field of battle. And then afterwards, as they rot in jail, he has not spent a dime to help them. Which totally ignores the fact that he could have pardoned himself and he could have pardoned all of the January Sixers on the way out. I, uh, you know, at a future date, I will be in-depth discussing Trump, his history, how I feel about this whole legal charade. But what I'll say is this. Um, he had in his hands, he had the power to prevent himself from being under the legal persecution he now faces. He could have prevented all of his followers from being under the legal persecution that they face and continue to face years after the event. He could have stopped all of it. He could have commuted or pardoned every single person involved in that event. He has that power as the president. This is one of the most rock-solid presidential powers, totally plenary. I mean, a lot of these same people saying, oh, well, you know, he, he couldn't have pardoned himself because the Dems would have, the Dems would have done X, Y, Z to him. What, they're going to impeach him again? Who cares? You're on the way out. You're on the way out. Who cares? Yeah. Don't. <laughs> I've heard some pathetic excuses in my time. All right. This is just either incompetence of the highest order, which I refuse to believe at this point. For someone of this to be this successful. Somehow he was smart enough to become president of the United States, but he's not smart enough to exercise the power that's been given to him. No, 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 no. Trump was very aware of his role in that day and that deception. And uh, I mean, geez, go back, watch his disgusting little hostage video where while the Capitol Hill Police Department has literally murdered three people by this point. And he's releasing videos. I love you all, but you need, you've made your point. You need to go home. Sure, we'll go home, Trump, right after we pick up the dead bodies of our of your supporters, quote unquote. Absolutely despicable. Yeah, and before anyone, lest anyone accuse me of being, you know, I mean, again, <laughs> politics is all a big, it's a drama, right? It's a drama. So I'm not I'm not saying this because I'm a uh, you know a, a rabid anyone fan. You can read my piece on uh, DeSantis if you think otherwise, right? There are managed actors put into places of positions and power and authority. The president has been selected for at least the last century, likely longer. People are out here playing their part. They're out here doing the bidding. Trump was doing the bidding of his masters that day. Whip up the crowd into a frenzy. Point them at Capitol Hill. Have them be brutalized by the federal government. And then use it as a pretext to terrorize peaceful American citizens for years to come. Welcome to the American police state. The further research section of uh, today's essay is light on the reading, mostly a lot of documentaries. And uh, there's some good footage, mostly, um, you know, the the take on events, uh, as always, right? Just because I'm putting a, a source here doesn't mean I endorse every nuance or even the person making it, you know, often I'll put uh, <laughs> sources I disagree with on here, you know? So 
we have a full look here kind of of the gamut. Um, we have a pair of documentaries by Jacob Lang, The Truth About January 6th and Freedom Isn't Free, The First Battle of the Second American Revolution. Uh, now, Jacob Lang, like I was talking about earlier, has been in pretrial detention for over three years at this point. And or almost three years, excuse me, uh, by uh, his trial date in September, it'll be the three and a half years. And it is, you know, he narrates these documentaries, he talks about the events, uh, some of the, the most intense fighting happening in the the tunnels on the west side of the Capitol. I mean, the difference between the west side and the east side of the Capitol, it's like two different days, it's two different events, right? People just walk in peacefully on the east side of the Capitol, they leave peacefully. West side of the Capitol, which yours truly and uh, Jacob Lang was on, is where all of the violence takes place. You know, besides Ashley Babbitt being shot, which you know, we'll get into here. I guess uh, we have an essay by Miles W. Mathis. The January 6th attack on the Capitol was staged. So I, you know, I've brought up... Mr. Mathis, before in some of my episodes on the new coax, he is an interesting writer, and while I don't agree with all of his suppositions, um, you know, for instance, uh, he does not think that Ashley Babbitt actually died that day, and now I'm, I'm, you know, I say allegedly in my essay, right? Like, I don't know, you know, there, there's a little bit uh, of doubt, um, but... You know, there's a pretty big variable that's not accounted for in some of his essays. And, you know, he's got a habit of, of kind of not addressing these pretty big variables to his theories. And one of these is, you know, Ashley Babbitt's mom has been uh, holding candlelight vigils in front of the D.C. Gulag for, I mean, you know, uh, the better part of the past two years. I guess almost three years now. Yeah, three years since uh, January 6th. Man, time flies. But I mean, she has just been not acting in a way, in a, in a manner that uh, I would think a a mother who is in on it is acting, right? And I mean, maybe she thinks legitimately her daughter's dead and, you know, her daughter is secreted away somewhere. Who knows? You know, I don't think that's uh, very likely, personally somewhat more dubious on that theory, but there is a lot of very strange circumstances and connections beyond the Ashley Babbitt angle as talked about in that essay. And for that reason alone, I mean, the amount of Air Force officers, of Air Force PSYOP officers, Ashley Babbitt, part of a PSYOP division, uh, we have one Jaden X the videographer of the Ashley Babbitt attack travels from Portland to DC a couple of days before January 6th. Uh, his father was a Air Force uh, psychological operations officer as well. A lot of strange, a lot of strange connections here. Um, I guess you can chalk it up to a big coincidence. And as always with these big events, we got a good deal of numerology too, which I appreciate. Uh, and Mr. Mathis uh, deals with in his essay. So despite some of my disagreements with uh, his conclusions here, I think all in all, a very strong essay and asks a lot of very problematic questions for the mainstream narrative of January 6th. And then we also have a uh, another documentary here, Bloody Hill by Stop Hate, another one of these uh, documentaries made by former January 6ers. And again, this is just the footage here describing this as a war zone, I don't think is a, um, you know, hyperbole. There are, I mean, there was, uh, I forget the name of the gentleman, but there's a big tower that for the purposes of, you know, like the inauguration and swearing in, uh, television cameras will usually be on this tower, right? And at some point, someone had climbed up there with a bullhorn. And I mean, this is like something out of Stalingrad. This man was just like, oh, push, push, and directing at different times the flow of the crowd and calling out 
the you know the actions of the Capitol Hill police. I mean, it was it was really really something intense, and you can see that in some of the you know the pictures uh, attached to this essay. You can see that in the several documentaries uh, I have linked at the end of that essay, as I always do. And then uh, lastly here, we have a series on YouTube. Um, I think I think this information's paywalled on Fox Nation, so this video I haven't checked uh, because the video is age-restricted, so I haven't checked and seen if there is a... Uh, if it's, this one's still up, but it should be up. And that is Patriot Purge by Tucker Carlson, and uh, actually some good reporting on J6. Um, shockingly from, uh, Tucker, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, not a, not a huge fan of Mr. Carlson, uh, like pretty much anyone in the mainstream at this point, you know, controlled or willing to not touch on certain subjects because they know what's going to happen. So, you know, there's always that line that they're unwilling to cross. And I mean, Mr. Carlson, another one of these figures that just has a ton of ties to the intelligence community. I mean, his dad, a long-standing member of the Central Intelligence Agency um, through their subsidiaries uh, and Voice of America. And so uh, the Carlson family plugged into the intel community for a very long time. Uh, Tucker claims he tried to be a CIA uh, officer, but, uh, you know, he was turned down or whatever, right? <laughs> Uh, you know, not to mention that the man practices uh, Kabbalah. So if you'll note, uh, I mean, you can see him in his episodes. You can see him, uh, if you pay attention here on his left wrist, uh, he wears a little red bracelet, which in Kabbalah, uh, which is, you know, uh, rabbinic mysticism, uh, Babylonia cult, uh, Babylonian occultism, really, uh, just with a Jewish flavor, and so this little red string is worn to protect them from evil spirits, right? And uh, Tucker Carlson, you can see you can see him spotted with one of these things all over. Um, you know, uh, just keep that as always the source of the information in mind. The biases. Uh, I mean, at least unlike all these other media people, I'm very upfront about my biases. You know, <laughs> uh, we are a explicitly Christian based. Uh, publication, right? Always will be. And uh, first and foremost, that is the mindset that we have here. And so it's, it is something to just keep in mind when you're watching the series. But I think regardless of my feelings on Tucker, it was the footage, I mean, right? Like mute it. The footage alone. Incredible, incredible footage. Uh, really stunning stuff, and it it paints the day in an entirely new light, right? Because what we've heard throughout all this this uh, narrative is that you know the savage patriots come in, they brutalize the poor CHPD, they're trying to you know rape AOC, and they're trying to hang you know Congress critters and guillotines. I mean, just we're told the most. This is like nine eleven and Hiroshima, and Nagasaki combined with January, you know, with the uh, with a little bit of Pearl Harbor thrown in. You know, this is like the worst thing that ever happened. And I mean, you can just look and you can watch. You can see the footage. And you can see a, a peaceful crowd, brutally attacked and savaged by the Capitol Hill Police Department. That's the real story, what went on that day. And today's essay is just a my little piece of that puzzle in regards to what I saw and my opinions on the real meaning and context of that fateful, fateful day in American history. So without further ado, I'll be reading from my July 4th, 2023 article, Requiem for a J6er. Certain dates echo throughout history, including dates that instantly remind all who have lived through them where they were and what they were doing when our democracy came under assault. Dates that occupy not only a place on our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. 
December 7th, 1941. September 11th, 2001. And January 6th, 2021. Vice President Kamala Harris. End quote. If you're looking for a hit of political fentanyl, and best to move on, because this essay ain't for you. This story is weighed on my soul. It is about time I finally tell this tale. I can think of no more fitting a day than July 4th, in honor of the faded remembrance of what this land once was. That fateful day in January has reshaped how I view history, my country, and my service to it. What I witnessed on January 6th on the steps of Capitol Hill has forever altered my political beliefs and outlook on my country of birth. This is the day that America truly died. Such knowledge cannot simply be wiped away, forgotten, or unlearned. It extracts a price. When Kamala Harris equates this day to Pearl Harbor or September 11th, she is revealing a much deeper truth than most will appreciate. You see, January 6th was an orchestrated psychodrama exactly like so many other planned events in our history. See, the Frankenstein formula for dissection of these and other American false flags. Government actors had foreknowledge of the plot because they were the ones setting it up. The event is rife with agent provocateurs, and as tightly guarded footage of that day has slowly leaked out, that fact has been made apparent. The doors to Capitol Hill, which the vast majority of demonstrators entered through, have electronic maglocks and could only have been opened from the inside. It is also no accident that out of the 658 windows on Capitol Hill, these agent provocateurs broke through four of the 12 windows that had yet to be secured with bomb-resistant glass. Good golly, how could such information have been gained and exploited? Must have been blind luck. Before I tell you my story of what transpired that day, it is important to frame these events in their proper historical context. And no, I'm not talking about the BLM riots of 2020. What ultimately culminated in violence on April 19th of 1775, when the shot heard round the world was first fired at Lexington and Concord, truly started decades before. Most Americans can recite the phrase, no taxation without representation, but they can't tell you why the taxes were necessary in the first place. The English Empire's victory over France in the Seven Years' War had cost the British dearly. They were extraordinarily indebted to the banking elite of the City of London, and this enormous tax burden was to be paid almost entirely on the backs of the English colonists in America. On our side of the pond, we call this the French and Indian War. But in reality, our provincial conflict was simply one of many theaters where these empires dueled. After nearly 10% of the male colonists were drafted into the British war effort, after 15,000 Americans had died to defend their borders, they were now being saddled with the war debts as well. The first of these taxes was the most insidious of them all, the Stamp Act of 1765. This included the direct taxation of all colonial, commercial, and legal papers, newspapers, pamphlets, cards, almanacs, and dice. The unassuming name belies the massive threat to free expression that this tax actually was. This wasn't about postage stamps. This was about being able to speak their mind. This was about being able to function in a civilized society without the imprimatur of the king. The Stamp Act was nothing less than an outright attack on the freedom of expression and inheritance. The outcry was so fierce that the crown eventually relented, if but for a moment. What followed for the next decade was a series of increasingly hostile legislative acts designed to reassert the authority of the British monarchy over its colonies. The most pernicious of these acts was the Tea Act of 1773. This law, quote-unquote, gave monopolistic privileges to the British East India Company, allowing them to avoid excise taxes so that they could undersell their colonial competition. 
The colonists rightly saw these tyrannical edicts for what they were, an attack upon their very ability to earn a living. The seeds of the American Revolution were sown not because 3% taxes were too high, but because these taxes represented an insidious agenda to undermine the ability of the colonists to live as a free people. The parallels to our own predicament should be obvious. What was at stake then is what's at stake now. The ability to earn a decent living, to chart our own destiny, and to speak our mind without fear of reprisal. Quote, When I fell behind that line, I saw, I can just remember my breath catching in my throat because what I saw was just a war scene. It was like something I had seen in the Middle East. There were officers on the ground. They were bleeding. They were throwing up. I was slipping in people's blood. It was hours of hand-to-hand combat. U.S. Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards. End quote. Let me set the stage for you. It was me and my two buddies, let's call them K and C, and we had caravanned our way into D.C. the night before. And no sightseeing or rallies for us. It was in and out and then back to the daily grind. At the time, I was just starting my journey in independent journalism, and this seemed like the kind of story that you could make your bones off of. We weren't there for the politics or to support Trump. We were there because I rightly thought this was going to be a pivotal day in American history. You don't get a front row seat like this to history very often. And the energy in D.C. that morning was palpable. On the metro ride into town, we picked the brains of some of the riders, trying to get a feel for the crowd and what was motivating these people to show up. You know what the number one answer was? Fear. Fear that their country was slipping away from them. That their franchise had been invalidated. Yes, there were a lot of Trump flags and hats, but for every Trump supporter there, there was someone who thought what happened in November was nothing less than a coup. Another major theme mentioned by the demonstrators was how COVID tyranny had decimated their businesses and lives. These weren't radical domestic terrorists. They were the engine that still drives his country. As we waited for Trump, we took in the crowd around us. The people who had come to D.C. were truly a cross-section of America. The young, the elderly, families, dogs, cats, street preachers, and t-shirt vendors. It was more like a block party than a political rally. Eventually, Trump arrived, and he performed basically the same speech he had been doing for two months now, with perhaps a bit more pizzazz. Rigged election, they stole it from me, blah, blah, blah. He said he would meet the crowd at the steps of the Capitol. So me and my crew left right as Trump wrapped up speaking. It took us about ten minutes to walk to the Capitol. And right as we arrived, things got squirrely. Now the timeline I've seen online does not match with what me and my crew remember. According to the fact checkers, the interactions below happened at 12.53. Trump did not finish speaking until 1.13 and Congress officially evacuated at 1.26 p.m. I can assure you that Trump was done talking well before any interactions with the cops began. As you can see in the picture above, there was a large flow of people walking that direction precisely because he was finished. The events you are about to see below all occurred well after Trump was done talking, which, if that was 1.13 p.m., then this interaction would have occurred after Congress was evacuated. This lie is particularly important for them to establish in these J6 timelines, and it shows you how early the lying has begun. Pictured is first-hand footage of the events of January 6th. We have Ryan Samsel turning his hat backwards as the fences are breached. And then pictured in a red circle is one Mr. Ray Epps, who can be seen at the forefront of the vanguard throughout the day. Now, Kay notices a crowd forming around some barriers, and we immediately go over there to start filming. 
there are three cops trying to fend off over a thousand people unsuccessfully. Eventually, Ryan Samsel, seen above, and others push down these shoddy, waist-high fences. The massive flow of tens of thousands of people begin to have a momentum of its own, and the crowd moves forward. And the officers retreat back to the steps as the crowd marches up. If you had not witnessed the breach yourself, you would have no idea even 60 seconds afterwards whether a breach had occurred. Most of the crowd after this point therefore have no idea this area was fenced off. You can also see in the picture above that other areas only had plastic snow fencing, which can easily be walked over. The feds couldn't have made this bait more obvious if they tried. Before any real interactions have occurred with the Capitol Hill Police Department, without any warning or provocation, a barrage of tear gas canisters and flashbangs are fired indiscriminately into a peaceful crowd. I call it tear gas, but to be honest with you, I have no idea what this chemical was the feds deployed against us. I've done sea burn training, I huffed a big lungful of tear gas in boot camp like everyone else, and I can tell you, that was no tear gas. It's just minutes after the breach that Kevin Greeson is hit in the chest with a flashbang, causing him to have a heart attack. He would be pronounced dead at 2.05 p.m. It's the same way that Benjamin Phillips would die later that day, making him the second of the four victims of the Capitol Hill Police Department on January 6th. The crowd eventually stop at the steps of the Capitol, close enough to be heard but not pushing past the second police line. Within minutes, dozens of officers clad in riot gear have formed a shield wall using metal jersey barriers, almost like they were prepared for a fight. Throughout all of this, I have continually spotted one Ray Epps at the forefront of all this action, egging others on while tearing down barriers. Revolver News has done an incredible series on this obvious Fed provocateur for those unfamiliar with this character. And it wasn't until a few weeks later that I realized who this conspicuous character popping up all over my footage was. With the police line established, there is about a 15 to 20 minute lull in the action. During this time period, tens of thousands more people show up at the steps. It's barely possible to move around at this point. The crowd breaks out and a chance of stop the steal and we want Trump before belting out a spirited rendition of the Star Spangled Banner. By this point, I thought that the protest had reached an equilibrium. The officers on the front line had their cordon established and the demonstrators had made their point by getting within earshot of the Capitol. Pictured is the calm before the storm as the Capitol Hill Police Department begins to assemble themselves. And then pictured below is the crowd recoiling against the unprovoked Capitol Hill Police Department assault. That is when the ramparts above began to fill with Capitol Hill Police Department and D.C. Metro officers. Totally unprovoked, and without any kind of verbal warning, dozens of officers began to fire down into the crowd, specifically aiming for faces in order to do the most damage. Rubber bullets fired within 50 feet will puncture skin, as a man behind me found out after a bullet ripped open his left cheek and blew out his teeth. I saw another man's eyeball get blown out of its socket. Tear gas and other chemical weapons were lobbed down into a crowd of unarmed grandmothers, grandfathers, women, veterans, and children. With total disregard for their alleged countrymen, these federal automatons wantonly unleashed their barrage of non-lethal quote-unquote rounds and chemical warfare on an unsuspecting crowd. If we had used such weapons on the Afghanis, we would have been called war criminals. But if it's used on your own citizens, then it's all good. At this point, the crowd begins to recoil, and the Capitol Hill Police Department push their barrier forward to the top of the Capitol steps. 
Even after being mercilessly attacked, people in this crowd are still trying to plead with the officers. We're on your side. We back the blue. This meant absolutely nothing to people who had seared their conscience long ago. When Kay asked one officer why he was doing this, the officer responded, quote, I'm just here for a paycheck, end quote. Now, I'm not going to pretend like there wasn't also violent acts on the Patriot side. I will note, however, it is only after watching their families and countrymen get brutalized did those in the crowd begin hand-fighting and shoving with officers. Maybe you can sit by and watch old women get shot in the face with rubber bullets without doing anything, but not everyone can. After being stoked, beaten, prodded, tased, gassed, and electrocuted, not everyone keeps their composure. Without any clear warning, these malicious attacks against an unsuspecting crowd appear designed to provoke the violent reaction that we witnessed that day. This is when I witnessed the most clear-cut incident of Fed provocation that day. Multiple individuals in camouflage and gas masks went up to the Jersey barriers and began pulling them backwards in a coordinated fashion, exposing the Capitol Hill Police Department and trapping people underneath the barrier. This occurred right next to me and Kay. In response, the CHPD sprayed whoever happened to be in the vicinity, which unfortunately included your intrepid correspondent. From about six inches away, this Capitol Hill Police Department officer pointed his can of bear mace right at my cornea, blasting my eyeball with the searing heat of a thousand suns. I can still recall the sensation of the liquid washing over my eyes. My immediate thought was, this is going to hurt. And hurt it did. As I was out of commission for the next hour or so, this snot continued to pour profusely from my mucous membranes. Kay was maced while he picked up an elderly woman, preventing her from being trampled underfoot. At this point, me and my crew get separated and I begin to witness the aftermath of this heinous attack. After the copious mucus was cleared out, of course. And the gruesome wounds that the crowd have suffered are being tended to on the outskirts of the lawn. There are people hacking up, vomiting, and blinded in agony from whatever chemical cocktail was unleashed on us. The one that has stuck with me the most was a young boy, on the cusp of manhood but still clearly a child, crying into his mother's jacket. Why would they do this to us? he cried out. I don't know, sweetheart. I don't know. And then his mother poured more water into his eyes, attempting to flush the pepper spray Capitol Hill Police Department officers had sprayed into this child's face. And pictured as that young man. Eventually, me and my crew meet back up, as word spread about the alleged killing of Ashley Babbitt. We all agreed that we had had our fill of the Capitol Hill Police Department's hospitality, quote-unquote. We'd grab some primo footage, and it was time to go. This was around 4 p.m., and there were still a good 25,000 or so people on the steps. At the height of the siege, there were easily 100,000 or more people within the Capitol grounds, as you can see from the pictures below. We made our way back to our hotel, solemnly taking in the events of the day before heading home. And then pictured is a series of photos of the crowd at the west side of the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Quote, But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the Russian Revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Alexander Isayevich Solzhenitsyn. End quote. Where to even begin unpacking this day? Let's start with the egregious lie that this was an unprovoked attack upon our sacred democracy. Firstly, no Congress critter was ever in any danger. They'd all fled into the rat tunnels under D.C. long before the Capitol was ever breached. 
Despite the building being evacuated, the journalists were staged inside key locations, such as Nancy Pelosi's office, in order to capture valuable propaganda. It is also clearly evident from the protection of notable individuals, such as Ray Epps, that there was a vast network of federal agents and informants making sure January 6th turned into the cluster F we saw play out. Their task was to lead an unwitting crowd into the CHPD's kill box so that this event could be used to rubber stamp a clearly fraudulent election. Awful convenient on these spontaneous events always work out in the regime's favor. Of the over 1,000 Americans who were eventually arrested for entering the Capitol, only 13% compromised those affiliated with militia groups. Over 50% are small business owners, CEOs, doctors, lawyers, and architects. 25% had a college degree, which is 5% lower than the national average. Two-thirds of those arrested are over the age of 34, in comparison to the average arrest age of 25 for left-wing riders. The unemployment rate of J6ers is no different than the national average. This was not a disaffected group of society's rejects. The persecuted J6ers are the best that America has to offer. Top two pictures are Mike Pence receiving a Masonic coin and a Masonic grip, seen on C-SPAN after certifying of the fraudulent 2020 election. The bottom left picture in this array is Donald Trump and Paul Ryan exchanging a Masonic grip while Vice President Mike Pence is sandwiched in between them. And then the bottom right is Vice President Mike Pence and South Korean President Moon Jae-in exchanging a Masonic grip. It is an indisputable fact that mail-in drop boxes seen in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Georgia are gross violations of their state constitutions. Mail-in voting had rejection rates of 2-3% in previous years, with mail-in votes making up 30% of the vote total. In 2020, mail-in voting represented nearly 70% of the votes counted, and the rejection rate was less than half a percentage point. That means first-time mail-in voters were six times more accurate, all while more than doubling the number of such votes. No system becomes more efficient with complexity, and neither did our voting system. Not that elections matter in this country, but the regime didn't even try and hide voting's fraudulent nature last time around. In hindsight, the vast majority of this stop-the-steal, quote-unquote, nonsense seems designed to run out the clock on legitimate legal challenges. Now, the legal system is so hopelessly compromised at this point that even a legitimate legal challenge would have been denied, a la Texas's Supreme Court challenge. But it certainly doesn't help the public perception of your cause. Yeah, whatever happened to that uh, $250 million, by the way? The average citizen is not tangibly or financially harmed by Dominion getting a contract to run your election. But whatever you think of Dominion or Mike Lindell aside, the simple fact is that such issues are not justiciable, i.e., they cannot be legally adjudicated on. Instead of pursuing an actionable legal course, Trump's lawyers pursued fruitless inquiries into the Dominion corporate flowchart. As a first-hand witness to the barbarism of the CHPD, the aftermath of January 6th has been stunning for me to behold. A day of unbridled government savagery was turned on its head and used to demonize its victims. Peaceful protesters who spent 15 minutes in the Capitol building have been terrorized in pre-dawn SWAT raids. It's painful to think there would be a day in America where we would indefinitely hold non-violent political prisoners in pre-trial detention. And even worse, that we would live to see such a day. A day where political prisoners are held in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day, year after year. Where political prisoners would be denied food, cancer medication, or medical care where political prisoners would be sodomized, beaten, 
and sexually assaulted. Such conditions are scarcely better than the Soviet gulags, and that is sadly not hyperbole. Outside of a few stalwart reporters and a handful of elected officials, our country has largely forgotten the J6ers. Julie Kelly, formerly of American Greatness, has basically been a one-woman army on this story from day one. Her extensive coverage on J6 and the horrific abuses perpetrated against our fellow Americans in the D.C. Gulag is a must-read for anyone trying to learn what truly happened in D.C. that day. While our countrymen lay confined in inhumane conditions, while our brothers and sisters are persecuted by an utterly untethered DOJ, today we will be told this is the freest country on earth. We will be sold fantasies about how the country, with the largest prison population in the world, is the land of the free. We will have the audacity to call ourselves the home of the brave on the heels of locking ourselves inside our homes for months on end. There is nothing new under the sun. What has happened before will happen again. The same intransigent foe that reared its head in 1776 has reared its serpentine head yet again. The same threats our forefathers faced have metastasized on our shores. Our only hope lies in the realization of that fact and the embrace of Christ as our Savior from such an implacable foe. War has been declared upon us, whether we are willing to accept that fact or not. Look upon the true face of the regime. Does this look like a free country to you? Does this look like the land of the free? Or does this look like the prelude to an even darker chapter of our history? Quote, and how we burned in the camps later, thinking, what would things have been like if every security operative, when he went out at night to make an arrest, had been uncertain whether he would return alive and had to say goodbye to his family? Or if, during periods of mass arrests, as for example in Leningrad, when they arrested a quarter of the entire city, people had not simply sat there in their lairs, paling with terror at every bang of the downstairs door and at every step on the staircase, but had understood they had nothing left to lose and had boldly set up in the downstairs hall an ambush of half a dozen people with axes, hammers, pokers, or whatever else was at hand. The organs would have quickly suffered a shortage of officers and transport, and notwithstanding all of Stalin's thirst, the cursed machine would have ground to a halt. If, if... We didn't love freedom enough. And even more, we had no awareness of the real situation. We purely and simply deserved everything that happened afterward. Alexander Sayevich Solzhenitsyn. End quote.